This episode of Warp Five is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com/trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp Five, our dedicated Enterprise show. I'm Christopher Jones, and joining me again this week—well, again, as in he's been with me recently, at least. Tommy, I don't think you're actually—you didn't play Dinesh in Bound, did you? <laughs> no, but I mean, if you put the green makeup on me, you really can't tell us apart. It's like twins, really. Maybe. I don't know. You know, I did have Crystal Allen on the show last time, and she looks a little bit different than you, I have to say. Right, but I mean, once the makeup goes on, it's like totally different. <laughs> you, you know, it's a completely different person. So can you dance like Crystal? <laughs> well, see, you just have to wait till, I, till you see me in an episode before you get the answer to that question. But okay. I will say it is quite the sight. Well, I'm looking forward to the dance scene in Star Trek Horizon. Yes, it'll be the the post credit scene, like at a Marvel movie. Uh, you know, I'll just be there dancing on the bridge of the ship or something. <laughs> That'll be great. Yeah. So everyone, it is Tommy Craft. Tommy, thanks for coming on the show again. Hey, no problem. I always love these discussions, so glad to be here. So this week, we decided to return to the Zindi arc and talk about a character from the Zindi arc, and that's Degra the Zindi primate scientist who is the primary designer of the Zindi superweapon. And Tommy, I know that you really enjoy the third season of Enterprise and you enjoy the whole arc and that whole story. What did you think about Degra as being part of this story? I think he was a fantastic character. And the first time I watched it back, uh, I mean, the first time I watched it, I was a lot younger and I don't remember that much of it. But the first time watching it back, I, I saw a lot of character development. And then I went back and watched it again and having it fresh in my mind. And I realized just how well that character was played and how well he was written from top to bottom in that season. And there's so much depth there with Degra and, and his um, his motivations. So I think he's definitely one of the better recurring Star Trek characters, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. He is one of the better recurring Star Trek characters. And he's an interesting character because he goes from a villain to someone who actually helps the crew. And there's a sense of redemption for him as well. And you you do follow his plight and his internal struggle over the course of the arc and it, it makes him 
not not just the typical villain, and especially within the Zindi themselves. You know, he's not just the baddie like Dolom, the reptilian Zindi is all the time. He he actually is someone that you come to know. Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of the recurring characters in Star Trek are kind of like Dolom. They're fairly stationary throughout their run. Now, I mean, there have been characters that have developed quite a bit over the years. A couple of really good ones are Gal Dukat and Damar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times you get the Shrans. I mean, Shran developed, but not a lot. He pretty he was even when he was first introduced, he was in, more of an anti-hero. And right. um, but a lot of characters, you think like Wayun or Brunt, you know, they stayed fairly constant throughout their time in the series but degra you really get to see him go from the guy who built a weapon and is building another weapon to destroy a whole planet to the guy who then is gonna try and save that planet and it's a really cool transformation and you and two you get to see that for the zindi themselves over the course of that season you do yeah you you really do so you mentioned that he came to he was played very very well in in the series and i noticed that now as i've watched the arc over and over and over and i watch degra i see more nuance in the performance than i noticed in the past he was played by randy oglesby and when he got the role there was a hint that it might be a recurring character but the the depth to which Degra is involved in the storyline seems to have evolved over the course of the season in the writing because the writers were very impressed with the way Oglesby played the character and realized that they could do so much more with the character of Degra thanks to his talent as an actor. And Oglesby, did you recognize him when you saw Degra the first time? Did you say, I think I've seen that guy in Star Trek before? I didn't actually, but then after that season and I, I mean, I watch a lot of Star Trek. I then recognized him elsewhere in Star Trek. It's funny. Um, he's one of the, I, I, there was an episode of DS9 where he played twins. He did. He played the Miragorn yeah. twins. That's right. Which is like yeah. a really, really bad Wrigley's Double Mint Gum commercial, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But he did it so, like everything else. He did it so well. Yeah. Well, it goes back even further than that. He played a character on The Next Generation. Oh, really? I don't remember that. He is actually the scholar artist in Reva's chorus in Loud as a Whisper. I do not remember that. I mean, I don't remember him. Um, I'll have to go back and watch that again. He was much younger then compared yeah. to when he played Degra, so he looks a bit different. But that was his first character on Star Trek. He has a pretty recognizable voice, too, though, so I'm sure that probably helps give it away. Mm. At least I think he does. He also played Silaran Prin, who's the Cardassian that kidnaps Kira in uh, the really? DS9 episode, The Darkness and the Light. But he's disfigured there. That Cardassian was disfigured. So it's kind of hard to tell from his face that it's him. I didn't know that either. Man, now I have to go back and watch that episode too, again. And there's more. I've got more for you here. He also <laughs> played Kira in Voyager's Counterpoint. That's a good and episode too. He also played one more character on Enterprise. Do you have any idea who this was? Can you give me a hint? (laughs) 
I'll give you a hint. I'll give you the title of an episode of The Ready Room where we talked about the episode that he was in. We called that episode of The Ready Room Risnipple. I, I don't got it. He was Trenal, the captain of the Zerillion ship that Trip went over to. Oh, you know what? I can totally see that now. I didn't know that, but now that you mention it, I can totally picture that. Yeah, you can awesome. tell a bit in his eyes and a bit in just the shape of his face if, if you're yeah. looking for it. But he, he does a really good job of transforming himself in his different roles. Yeah, because, you know, all of these roles you've listed, like, I can't, I don't remember him, like Randy Oglesby specifically, being part of those performances. Um, that, I mean, that goes to the testament of, of what a good actor he is. Definitely. And I'm with you too. Uh, when I watched Degra, I did not think back to any of these other characters and go, oh, that's the guy that played so-and-so character. Right. Well, yeah. it helps too that they're not, um, you know, like big recurring characters like Wayun right. or Brunt were, yeah. but they, but still it's hard to do to, to be able to separate and transform for each character like that. He almost reminds me of Von Armstrong in that sense, because Von Armstrong has played, yeah, I think, more characters than Jeffrey Combs, but no one thinks about him because his characters, you, you don't notice that it's him. You know what the amazing thing is about him, too, is that Admiral Forrest is such a... I mean, I love Admiral Forrest, but he, in a lot of ways, he's such a, uh, a stereotype character. You know, he's, he's yeah. the Starfleet Admiral, kind of father figure kind of guy, and... And he always wants to do the right thing and so on and so forth. And and so you wouldn't necessarily picture the guy playing that as being this really talented actor who can do any kind of role. And mm -hmm. then you find out that Vaughn Armstrong does like everything. Well, maybe you need to be that talented to pull that off in such a believable right. way. That's true. Yeah. To make it to make it look like it's a real person that in that stereotype kind of thing it, it is actually really hard to do it's like a it's like playing a bad actor is really hard to do well right well let's go on and talk about the character himself now a little bit and degra is the father of the zindi super weapon he's actually modeled after j robert oppenheimer which is probably pretty obvious to most people watching of course oppenheimer is known as the father of the atomic bomb headed up the Manhattan Project, right. developed the, the atomic bomb, and then felt very, very guilty over the years for the destruction that resulted from his creation. And you see that in Degra as well, and you see it through the course of the series. And one thing I find interesting here, and this is probably purely a coincidence, but the date in The Expanse is April 24th, 2153. And that's where we see the Enterprise being called back to Earth. And just before that, the Zindi probe attacked Earth and, you know, cut its way through Florida there. Well, Oppenheimer's birthday is actually April 22nd. Really? And I don't know exactly how many days transpired between the attack on Earth and when the Enterprise, when Archer records that log entry. But it's right around the same time that this attack on Earth takes place and, and Oppenheimer's actual birthday. 
So it's probably a coincidence. I'd like to think it's not. I'd like to think that they yeah. threw that in there as a nice little connection. But anyway, it's interesting to me. Well, there's there's such good writers. They always do that kind of. I mean, a good writer mm-hmm. will do that kind of stuff, and it's the kind of thing that's not obvious, you know. But yeah. it, somebody with a watchful eye will catch that kind of thing. <laughs> Someone with too much time and a watchful eye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that too, and a whole lot of uh, fun facts about history and when people were born. That's right. <laughs> so I don't know, but it's interesting. But what what do you think about the setup? Just going into the story and and what the story that they were going to tell, which was actually, of course, more a narrative about 9-11, although I think the seeds for it were in play before 9-11, but it certainly continued to grow out of that and feels more like a commentary on those events. But you can also see in the Zindi superweapon absolutely a connection to the atomic bomb and to the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So what do you think about creating this character of Degra in that respect to play a role in the story? Well, as a writer, it's it's it all depends on how you want to approach the situation. And you usually start out with this concept of a story that you want to tell. And I've heard the writers mention numerous times about, like you said, how a lot of it is inspired by or mirroring, et cetera, 9-11. And so when they started this story, I don't think they probably had a notion of Degra. But then coming back to the writer's room to, to plan out the third season... I think Degra is the kind of character that you need to really help move a story along and keep it interesting because when I was watching it back, I had forgotten since I watched it when I was much younger about them actually allying with the Zindi. Spoiler alert for anyone who doesn't know. Um, and it makes it much more interesting in the end than than than. It's more interesting than if they were just plain bad guys, because now you suddenly have a gray area. And Degra is the perfect example of that gray area. And I think he goes from less morally gray to more general gray to more white, morally white on on, on the gradient scale from black mm-hmm. to white. Mm-hmm. And it's... It's very interesting to watch that play out. The Zindi themselves are quite interesting in that way because, as you say, it's it's better that they're not just straight villains. But we do get straight villains within the Zindi, and then we get Degra. And when you, you go from primate to reptilian, and then I guess you have the aquatics in the middle— and then you've got the arboreals closer to the primates, and then you've got the insectoids going over. So you have even a gradient scale of straight bad guys versus right. complex villains. Yeah, and, and it's it's interesting that the insectoids and the um, um, reptilians are allied because even the insectoids aren't completely villainous. And we see that 
towards the end when before Dolom destroys the insectoid ship and the insectoids are having some kind of doubts and stuff like that. And it's interesting how this conflict is mirrored not only in the characters, but the races of the characters and the overall storyline. And when we come to Degra himself, one thing that I one role that I see him playing in the story is that he is the Zindi primate. And one thing that we'll talk about as we go on here is how he's the linchpin of saving humanity and Archer has to build trust with him. And then he comes to feel that there's more within humanity and he comes to trust us. And him being the primate member of the council is what I feel like makes that possible. We we have to have a character that we can most closely associate with. So naturally, that's the member of the Zindi that's the most like us. Who is that's a primate. primate, yeah. Yeah. Because it would have been harder as a viewer to connect with an insectoid. Oh, sure. But even in Arboreal, because we right. actually see Archer yeah. interact with Arboreals quite a bit. And even with that, it feels like there's more of an obstacle to that ultimate connection and trust there. And I think that's an interesting question that goes to um, kind of the core of who we are. What is it that makes Degra more trustable? Is it just because he looks more like us? Mm-hmm. I, I would I would hope not, but that's that's probably a lot of it. I think that is sort of hardwired into us, though. Yeah, and to, to overcome true. that takes real effort, just on an instinctual level. That's there. It's just part of of who we are, and it's hardwired. And if he had not been on the council, if no, if none of the Zindi species, none of the Zindi races had been primate, I wonder if the story would have taken a different tone and it would have been Archer would have looked for a different path to success. Well, you know, it's an interesting question because as a writer myself, and one of the things that I've always wanted to do is write a story with no human characters or really any noticeable human traits other than being a humanoid. It's a very hard thing to do because not only is it hard for your audience to connect, but you find yourself asking the question as a writer, what what is it about this character that I can write about? And then you have to find with your other characters, especially if you have other human characters like Archer, what is it that they can connect with? And as much as we love the Star Trek idea of all these people being idealistic and and being able to look past the cover of the book, so to say, Enterprise is a great indication that they're not always good at that. And, you know, Archer does have some moments of trusting the other Zindi, like when he trusts the Arboreal, I can't remember his name, to uh, to put the uh, radiation in. Oh, yeah, that in was the, growl- Growlick. That's right, yeah. But as the audience, still the connection isn't quite there as it is with Degra. I think Archer would have still, uh, the character of Archer, I think he still would have tried his best to make that connection with someone if it wasn't a primate. 
but I don't know that it would have worked from a television standpoint. Degger himself, continuing the comparison to Oppenheimer, really was devastated by the impact of his creation on others, killing millions. There were over 7 million people killed when the probe cut through Earth and down through the Caribbean and into South America. How did you see that feeling that he had impacting his view on the project over the course of the arc as they're building the actual superweapon? Because we see him try to sway the council as his own views evolve. And we also see how this could impact his view of the reptilian plan to build a bioweapon. And one thing that I noticed too, this time I went through and I just watched council scenes of Degra. And when the reptilians, when Dolom says they're going to build this bioweapon, they cut to Degra just for a moment. And there's just this expression on his face that I think really shows how uncomfortable he is with the idea of a weapon like that. And I think that it stems in part from having seen what the probe did, just the probe itself. Well, in a bioweapon, it's just so much more devastating in the amount of suffering that it causes. A, a bomb or a weapon that's just going to blow up your entire planet in a matter of seconds is not going to cause that much suffering. You're just going to be there one second and gone the next. But a bioweapon, that's that's a much different thing. And I think to someone like Degra, who didn't really want to do it in the first place, he was doing what he thought he had to do, a bioweapon is particularly disgusting to him. And... I, I don't know if, if that look he had was intentional, if he knew that this character thought that was disgusting at that point in, in mm-hmm. filming. But you would, you would think it would have to be more than a coincidence because it fits his character so well. Mm-hmm. And it was so subtle. I had never picked up on it before, actually. I only noticed it because I was specifically watching Degra in council chamber scenes. Yeah, and that's the thing about great acting. It's it's the subtle stuff like that that will make or break a performance and take it to the next level because he, he could have overplayed that and done some kind of big scowl or something, but that underplaying it really brings out the emotion more because most people, they aren't going to be big about that. You know, it's going to be the kind of thing that's going to disturb you in your core and that you wouldn't want to really show in that kind of meeting. Exactly. And with Degra, I see over the course of the story, as he learns more and more from Archer, he has to continue developing the weapon. Like he's not sold right. yet that that he he could stop the the project even if he wanted to. And of course he he can't even as he changes his mind, he can't show his hand too quickly to the council because none of them are going to be on board immediately and the reptilians are never going to be on board, of course. And I would say the insectoids are never going to be on board either. Well, And of course, know, we it's... know that the reptilians want to take over and ultimately, you know, they are right. hoping that yeah. they're going to get the help of the sphere builders. So he has to be careful, but you do see him become more and more uncomfortable 
with the idea of killing not millions, but billions. It's interesting because I think he played that so well because just uh, not to do a huge tangent, but probably a year and a half ago, I was I went through a big transformation from being raised in a really uh, fundamentalist religious family to atheism. And that was due mostly to studying science and not to say that science always leads to atheism, but um, the transition that I felt personally was one that was slow. And so I identify with Degra a lot in that way because it started out with first looking up research on things that I had been told were, were, were evil or of the devil or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, that I think mirrors very much his situation with the sphere builders too, where he goes from almost this reverence, but perhaps always having doubts in the back of his mind to a complete enemy of the sphere builders. And that isn't the kind of thing that you do overnight. You know, it's the kind of thing where even once you have incontrovertible proof, it still takes time for it to really sink in. And, he I, he hit that nail on the head so perfectly, and and again, I think it's a combination of both writing and acting. I can't say that enough, really, with his character. That's a great analogy, and you do see that because he doesn't want to believe. He fights against it internally, right? right he fights yeah. against the idea that the sphere builders really are doing something ultimately to harm the Zindi as well. One of my favorite lines from him, I think it's in the scene where Dolan was in interrogating Archer in his Adi Prime and Archer man, what was it Archer said to him? I can't quite remember. But he told him that the Zindi or the Sphere Builders had lied to him, I think. And Degra said, That is not a lie. And right. something about just the way he delivered that line so perfectly to me, I think so hit the mark that he was going for of having the evidence put forth to him, but not wanting to believe it. But you could see that there was a side of him that wanted to believe it too. Yeah, you you see that very well. And the, the interplay between Archer and Degra is really important to the story and the building trust. And when we were talking before the show, you mentioned that you thought maybe... Degra is Archer. You can see them reversing their roles. And we we do see Archer practice deception. And, well, we see Archer do things he doesn't really want to do in the Zindi arc, like when he has to steal warp coils from a ship. But we also see him here deceive Degra in, in a way to try to gain trust from Degra so that he can get information right. about where the weapon is located. And, of course, that comes before Azadi Prime, right? Because the weapon is actually... He finds out from Degra that the weapon is located at Azadi Prime. Yeah. What did you think about Archer's actions there and that that growing relationship between the two of them? Well, I think even going back to the Expanse, at the end of that, when when he says to Trip, we're going to do what we have to do. Yeah. And... It's interesting because that's the very same mentality that we see Degra has 
as the as the season as season three rolls on. And then in that season, we see Archer doing what he has to do. And it's things that make him and make I think it made me very uncomfortable when uh, when not only when he had to trick Degra by erasing his memories, essentially, and and playing along with him. But when he had to steal the warp coils and it's one of those situations as a viewer, you don't have a good answer to what you should do. But but it has to be done. And I wonder if Archer was pushed far enough, if if he would how far he would go. And but not only with that, you see that they both share a an open mindedness and willingness to trust the facts. And that even goes back to um, season one's cold front, I believe is what it's called. When they, uh, when they go and they see the great plume of Agasoria mm-hmm. and the guy asks Archer if, if he's religious and Archer says, I like to keep an open mind. Archer doesn't close himself off to any possibility. He takes the evidence and comes to the best choice that he can. And that's not always easy for anyone but that's the kind of person that Degra is too. So I think in a lot of ways, they are very, very similar characters. And Degra is an example of, I think, where Archer could be if he went down a bit of a darker path. And if the roles were reversed, Archer might resort to to extreme tactics like this to protect earth and to protect and I, I think it's pretty easy to see that because he does resort to some fairly extreme tactics and yeah it like almost suffocating the guy in the airlock right i mean that's pretty extreme that's pretty extreme especially for a starfleet captain right <laughs> yeah but it's also hard though because archer is portrayed as such a a I think as a decent person, especially in the beginning, I mean, he definitely has his, his human nature side to him. But I think one of the things that's really important to Archer is his sense of what's right and wrong and his wanting to help people. And so it is a really hard question to, to answer what, how far would he go to, to save humanity? And if you have to go that far, is it, is humanity worth saving? Um, I, I don't know that that's a question I would want to answer, honestly. Yeah, that is a tough question. I, I see what you mean about Degra, though, because I think I see the same thing in Degra, that he's ultimately a decent person. He's trying to do what he feels is right to protect people, but he wants to do the right thing, which is why, in the end, he does come back around and he helps Archer and he helps save Earth and then ultimately cost him his life, but he is trying to do the right thing, and he's only building that weapon because he thinks it's necessary in order to do the right thing within the context of his own people. Right, and and then take it back to the whole religion issue, and you have a group of beings that are basically passing themselves off as gods, and mm-hmm. you you take what they say to be true no matter what. And and then it can take a, a person like Degra 
who is otherwise a really good person and make him do terrible things. And I think it's interesting to see Degra come around to that notion. It's one of those things that's never outrightly mentioned in in the arc, but they do um, a touch on it, like in the episode where the extremists take over Enterprise. Yeah, which is and a good episode. I like that episode. It is. It's actually, I think, one of my favorites from the season, which happens to be a Manny Cotto episode, for whatever that's worth. I, I, some people say his episodes are always the best, and so that was a good one. Well, like Oppenheimer, Degra ultimately feels immense guilt over the destruction that his weapons caused. And I wonder if that guilt wasn't there. And this goes back to the beginning when I asked if maybe if the arc would work if we didn't have Degra in the first place. Do you think that the Enterprise could have succeeded without Degra's guilt? In terms of if it were if they just had to go in and fight it out, or if they were trying to make an alliance with with Degra or someone else who didn't have the guilt. I think the latter, because I don't think that there's any way that they could go in and just fight right. it out. I think that with or without Degra, it was going to be a case where they were going to have to form relationships, make alliances, find clues, and then ultimately swayed the Zindi Council not to destroy Earth. And I think it's Degra's guilt that is the actual linchpin to the whole thing. And that's what leads to I the success right. of the mission. Can you see, again, I mean, if you were writing the story, can you, can you see a way that it would turn out well for them if that guilt element weren't there? I don't think so, because... You need somebody in a position of power like Degra or really any of the other council members who are willing to basically put everything on the line and devote their entire life to this cause, which just so happens to go against everything you've ever believed, worked for, or lived for. And that is asking more than most anyone is willing to give unless they have a very good deep-seated reason already in play, like the fact that they're already very unhappy with everything that they've lived for and worked for and been taught. And so the other council members aren't, I don't think, as interested in changing their minds some of them are open to discussion and the evidence but for them i think it's more of an issue of logistics do we trust this guy or not well the sphere builders have proven more trustworthy so we'll go with them but degra has an element that makes him want to trust archer and i think that is like like you said a linchpin yeah it does seem that way i I'm sure you could write a story in which you could find a resolution could, yeah. to it, but would it be believable? And I think, yeah, probably. Well, and be. with those, with that set of characters, the way they are written now, if we were to just simply remove Degra from the picture and have Archer try to make alliances with the characters that are there, I don't think it would have went so no. well because you need someone like Degra to fight for you. 
because he's also a very passionate person too about what he believes in. Right. Well, when we get to the end of it, he pays the ultimate price. And in the end, again, spoiler alert, if you don't know, yeah. but if you're listening to this show, you've I'm sure you've seen Enterprise and you've seen this arc. Degra is murdered by Dolom, the Zindi reptilian member of the council. And Degra really put a lot on the line at the end. And as we've talked about, it seems Degra is a good person and he, I'm sure, has done many good things for his people in the past. He's a scientist who was dragged in to this project to create this terrible weapon. And going back to the comparison to Oppenheimer, two days before the Trinity test, Oppenheimer quoted the Bhagavad Gita. And he said, In battle in the forest, at the precipice in the mountains, on the dark great sea, in the midst of javelins and arrows, in sleep, in confusion, in the depths of shame, the good deeds a man has done before defend him. And it feels like he built up his courage and his belief in himself to finally stand up to Dolom at the end. And of course, it turned out poorly for him. But it shows a depth of character for him that in the end, he was going to do what was right. He he believed in the good that he had done in the past, and he was going to make sure that he wasn't personally responsible for destroying an entire world. Right. And the parallel between Oppenheimer is very stark. It's very clear. And it's the difference is, I think by this point, Degra feels that it's not only the humans that he's out to save, but he's still trying to save the Zindi as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think there's an element of frustration there too, that to him, he has the facts and he knows that the sphere builders are up to no good. And that if he fails, it will not only mean death for humanity, but for the Zindi as well. And I think there's an added motivator there, not only in the salvation of his people, but realizing that he will then be the cause of the death of his people and the death of humanity, since he's the one that had to build the weapon. And you can see that with Oppenheimer as well, in that the the weapon he created, if used by two sides or more in a war, That's could true. actually wipe us all out. Right. I should study him more, but I would be interested to to know his his what his thoughts were on the possible outcomes of that nuclear technology more fully. And there's a there's a lot at stake. And I guess it's hard for to to relate to that kind of responsibility. But then when you bring it back to to Decra, he he does such a good job of allowing you, the viewer, to feel that. And it's interesting how they take somebody who created this weapon and is initially someone that's so despicable, and they actually make him likable. Because you don't often think about, in your mind, I mean, Oppenheimer, you don't really think about it. You don't think about him being a bad guy. 
but the people who got bombed if they if they had survived or the people in the surrounding areas sure probably thought he was a bad guy or would have thought he was a bad guy right but i don't think he was a bad guy and it's interesting how our experiences and our what we see of a person and what we're told can color our judgment and I think both sides of that have played out very well. And you can see that a bit in the way that Archer interacts with Degra and the way Trip interacts with Degra. Because for Trip, right, it's yeah. much more personal because his sister was actually killed by the probe. Yeah, and, and it's in Degra too, you see that he's actually a decent person there too because he you can see how terrible he feels about that and, and how he doesn't want to confront Trip over it and then, of course, towards the end, when they do finally work together, is is a really good moment because you get to see there that it's something that Degra truly wanted, and it's a great moment for Trip too. Definitely. And you realize that the bad guys aren't always the bad guys. Exactly. That you know sometimes they're just working for the other side, and it's it's not so clear cut. Well, to wrap up here, do you have any final thoughts on Degra and his role in the Zindi arc? Oh, not too much, really, other than just it, it was a great character, as I've said, and a great performance by Randy Oglesby. And it's one of those things that is a standout from the arc. You know, it's it's one of, I think, one of the most important aspects. And Whenever I think about the Zindi arc, Degra is always one of the first things that comes to mind. And that is a testament to to how well he made that character come alive. And speaking as a writer-director myself, it's a really fantastic experience when you write characters and you get actors in to play them for the first time and the actors just make you fall in love with a character in a way that you never experienced or expected. And it's a rare thing because they have to do that for the audience too. And I, I think that they got the perfect guy with him. And I think he's one of those people I'd love to see more on TV and in movies. Unfortunately, just don't for some reason, but Degra was is was key to Enterprise and what made that story great. Yeah, I agree. If if you've seen the Zindi arc many times, go back and watch it again and and watch Degra's role in particular. You know, do what I did and scan through all the episodes and just focus on Degra. And and it really does draw out that performance that you're talking about. And you know, I don't know if it was uh planned in the beginning but to me when i watch him in the beginning he he seems very much even in the beginning like there's a hint of him not wanting to do it and uh i, I mean if it was planned then that's really great writing if it wasn't i think that's really great subtext by randy oglesby because if it just worked out so well for his character throughout the season i feel like it was more subtext um, he yeah. did talk about in in Communicator, in the magazine Communicator, once he did talk about feeling that moral dilemma for the character 
in what was going on with his weapon. So I think that even if the writers didn't know yet the extent to which they were going to go with this character, I think as an actor, he was sensing that this would be a moral dilemma for the character he was playing and that character at that point in time would be feeling that. Yeah, and it's an interesting choice as an actor too because you could certainly choose to play it the other way and just go full bad guy on it. You could choose to go full Commander Dolom on it, but he 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 hit a very interesting middle ground where again the gray area, you know, that as as an actor that is one I think one of the hardest choices in acting decisions to make and pull off well. Yeah, it really is, but the great actors do it in a way that it's, um, I don't know, it just seems so real and so right. Yeah, I mean, it's probably because I haven't actually, you know, I don't get to to work with the quote-unquote great actors on a daily basis. I, I do love all the people in Star Trek Horizon, but a lot of the people I've worked with in the past have not been Randy Oglesby's, and it, it just seems, as, as somebody who appreciates the craft, it seems so impressive to me what people like him do because it's so real most definitely well tommy thanks for joining me today before i let you go give us a real quick update on star trek horizon for those who don't know tommy is producing an enterprise era film called star trek horizon well we completed our kickstarter campaign a couple weeks ago and we went 225 percent over our ten thousand dollar goal and and so since then, uh, the money's been collected, and we had only a couple dropouts, which is really awesome. We budgeted in our goal for 5% of dropouts, and it was not even around. It was just around 1% or lower. Oh, great. Which is, yeah, is really great. And so and since that has happened, a 3D printer has been purchased to produce some awesome custom props that we wouldn't otherwise be able to have. And there's a new workstation on the way for the visual effects and storage and editing of all these raw files that we're shooting with. So things are really kicking up here and we're about 60% of the way through principal photography. So it's getting pretty exciting and there will be new video blogs coming out very soon as well as visual effects, behind the scenes, and tutorials for people interested in in my post-workflow and how I go about getting the shots that I get. So a lot's happening. Great. That's very cool. Yeah, you already have a lot of great videos showing behind-the-scenes stuff, so I'm looking forward to seeing those new ones as well. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And and hopefully the they will be very informative for everyone. And where should everyone go if they want to find out more about Horizon? We have our official website, which is StarTrekHorizon.com. And we have a Facebook page, which is Facebook.com slash STHorizon. Or you can just search in the search bar on Facebook for Star Trek Horizon. And I also have a personal Twitter that I occasionally tweet on, which is Tommy G Dog. It's spelled the gangsta way. I made it when <laughs> I was in eighth grade. Okay. <laughs> which, as we talked about on the Ready Room a while back, used to be... Tommy G doggy dog, right? Yes, right, exactly. <laughs> that was back when I was really cool and now I'm old and lame, so All right. Well, thanks again for talking Degra with me today, Tommy. Hey, no problem. I I enjoyed it as always. So, 
I suppose until next time, live long and prosper. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed our discussion of Degra today, but this isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network this past week. So here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. And we go to the theater. I still remember this, even though I was only four. I still remember this. We go to the theater and we're watching it. And then that Klingon dog shows up on screen. And I'm like, (laughs) what the frack is that? Get me out of here right now. Earl Grey. He would have excellent bedside manner. Here is a joke I know. Uh, uh. Would you like a Sumerian sunset? It is pretty. It will lift you from your terminal case of gout. Ah, ah, choo! The ready room. I think that she is picturing him in the en naturel division of <laughs> synchronized work. <laughs> Captain Fine. Which is not an Olympic sport, but they are considering it, it as a demonstration <laughs> sport for the Rio de Janeiro games coming up. The Orb. Is it this thing like where women like bad boys or something? Does Dakot have a Harley that I don't know about? Uh, I think he must. Um, and, <laughs> I don't know. You know, he rides around on a Harley. Uh, he's he uh, just breaking hearts all over the place. To the journey! He says, yeah, they want me to read. They're saying it's mine if I want it, but I don't want to do it. And she, like, jumps out of her chair and, like, shakes him. She's like, what? Are you kidding? This is Star Trek. Are you kidding? You would be made for life. Commentary, Trek stars. Yeah. I thought you were going to do a Brandon Braga voice. <laughs> it's uh, it's really hard to do a Brandon Braga voice. That's, that's pretty good. It's right got to be, uh, you know, it's got to be kind of quiet. Literary Treks. Again, it was originally published as a scroll form and then later as a codex book, and now both in print and electronic form in the 24th century. And this particular edition of it has an introduction and afterward and modern commentary by a 24th century Klingon novelist named Karatak. Continuing mission. Goal was to try to get as much Trek content into people's hands and to let people explore the Trek universe with their own spaceship and build their own crew in the way they want, customize and design, and just, you know, to be in your own Star Trek world. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. You can find us pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zoom. You can also find us on BlackBerry. We're on Swell, Spreaker, and we're on SoundCloud now as well. So just look us up wherever you get your podcasts. Search for Trek.fm or the name of the show that you'd like to listen to, and we should pop right up. If you're on iTunes, be sure to check out our artist page where you'll find lots of our past content. We have almost a thousand episodes here on the network right now. It's kind of hard to find some of our older content, but there's a wealth of interviews and discussion waiting for you there. And on iTunes, we do organize them into little blocks, which we change up from time to time with different themes to help you find past content. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a star rating and a written review. We love to hear from you, and it helps other Enterprise fans find the show as they're looking around in the iTunes store. And if you're not familiar with our full catalog of shows here on Trek Film, a great way for you to sample that is through the Trek Film Complete Master Feed, which contains every episode of every show we do. So wherever you get your podcasts, look up Trek.fm Complete Master Feed. We're not everywhere, but we're in a lot of places with that one. iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Swell, 
you should be able to find us in a lot of those places. And it's a great way to sample what other hosts are doing on other shows. And you can hear all about all your favorite series and characters. If you'd like to share your thoughts on today's show, let us know what you think about Degra, anything about the Zindi arc, Enterprise, or anything about Star Trek. We'd love to hear from you, and there are a number of ways you can contact us. You can find us on Twitter. Our username is TrekFM. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. We have a community on Google+. If you search G Plus Communities for Trek.afilm, you'll find us there. We have traditional forums on our website at trek.afilm slash forums. You can send us a voicemail through the widget in the sidebar on the show page for this episode on our website. And also we have a contact form, trek.afilm slash contact. Just choose to send to a show and choose Warp 5 and that will come to me by email. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'd love to get your questions, anything you want us to talk about on the show and love to hear from you there. So so let me know. And if you want to hit me up personally, the best place to find me is on Twitter. My username there is C Brian Jones, the letter C and Brian with a Y. And I use the same username everywhere in social media. So you can look me up wherever you are. Twitter is the best place to reach me, though. I do like to chat there. And if you tweet at me, I will reply to you. I do like to chat on Twitter. Uh, so don't be shy. Send me your thoughts on Enterprise and Warp 5. And let's talk Star Trek on there. Elsewhere on the network, you can find me on quite a few shows. Matthew Rushing and I do Literary Treks together, where we talk Star Trek books and comics and interview authors. We also do The Orb together, which is a lot like this show, but it's all about Deep Space Nine. I do a show called Continuing Mission, where I interview the people who make Star Trek fan films and independent productions. They're not all series. We also talk about games on there a little bit, and even audio dramas. I have another interview show called Matterstream, which is about the world inspired by Star Trek. It's about creativity, science, and social issues. There's also Hyper Channel, which is our daily news show where I sit down with you for about 15 minutes every day and share my thoughts on a few stories from the world of Star Trek. And then there's The Ready Room, which I host with other hosts from all around the network. Tommy's on there from time to time as well. And we talk about Star Trek news in all five live-action Star Trek series on there. And for Enterprise fans, last week we actually did the episode Vox Sola on there, which is a great episode from Season 2, very creative, directed by Roxanne Dawson. So if you like that episode and you want to know what we think about it, be sure to tune in to The Ready Room, Episode 142, which is titled Always Practice Safe Docking. Before I let you go, I would like to tell you about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com. They are the best source for audiobooks that you'll find anywhere online. They have over 150,000 titles waiting for you, and they add hundreds of new titles every week across many, many different genres. I've been getting my audiobooks from them for 14 years now, so I have a huge collection. And I can tell you firsthand, Audible is just fantastic. If you love podcasts, you're going to love audiobooks. It allows me to read, and I'm doing air quotes here, all sorts of books that I just don't have time to sit down and read. I can read them, again, air quotes here, as I'm going for my walks for exercise, as I'm washing dishes, as I'm on the train, wherever I am. It's a wonderful service. And as a Trek FM listener, we have a special deal for you. You can get one free audiobook of your choice, along with a 30-day trial to see how great Audible is. And all you need to do is to go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up. And if at the end of the trial you decide not to stick with Audible, there's nothing to lose because you get to keep that free audiobook. But just by trying Audible, 
you really will be helping us keep Warp 5 coming to you every week because the money that we receive when you try Audible almost covers our hosting costs for Warp 5 for one month. And we have 16 shows on the network, so we have a lot of expenses to cover. It's a really easy way for you to support what we're doing and help us keep the show going. And you get a great audiobook in return. And when you stick with Audible, you get great selection and great prices every single month. So go to audibletrial.com slash trekafilm and sign up today. We really thank you for doing that. And we really thank Audible for their support of Warp 5 and Trek FM. I'd also like to invite you to go check out Andrew Allen's album, Smooth Federation. We tell you about this album every single week. It's where we get this wonderful smooth jazz cover of Where My Heart Will Take Me that you hear on the show. You're probably hearing it play right underneath me right now as I talk. Andrew has nine other jazz renditions of music from across Star Trek on there. It's very creative stuff. You can pick it up in iTunes or on Amazon or just order the physical disc. It's, it's a really nice album. Great stuff there by Andrew. I know you're going to love it. Go check it out and support what Andrew is doing. Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. And join me again next week here in the Decon Chamber for another episode of Warp 5. <laughs>